the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Welcome to another edition of the Spot Track Podcast. My name is Mike Giannetti. It is Thursday, March 16th. We are attempting to digest here a little bit, right? It's been a wild three days. I wouldn't say it's one of the crazier NFL free agent weeks. I think this is fairly tame, although, you know, a couple of notable upcoming trades could change that quickly and maybe a couple of curveballs. But for the most part, you know, the Jalen Ramsey stuff last week, which we'll get to, was a little bit oddball. Most of the contracts we're going to talk about today, I think, are in line, under, kind of where we thought. And and for the most part, it's it's the usual suspect teams. So, I wouldn't say this is a blow the top off NFL free agency by any regard right now. Now, hopefully that changes. I, I know everybody's kind of looking for the hot take here. I'm going to start with at least what's been a hot take for quite a while here, which is Aaron Rodgers. Only because I feel obligated to chime in a little bit here. I threw a tweet out today, basically referencing the leverage conversation. And I did so without actually saying the word leverage because... Whenever you can have the discussion about one side versus the other or any kind of transactional stuff in sports, right? I mean, that's why we do what we do. Money has to be a part of this conversation. And Aaron Rodgers spent an hour or so yesterday on the Pat McAfee show and didn't, you know, the the word $60 million, the phrase $60 million didn't come up once. And that's fine. There's absolutely no prerogative for that to be part of his conversation because guess what? He's getting that no matter what, unless he decides to retire, which he said he's not. So it doesn't matter who's paying him. It doesn't matter how this is all going to work out from a trade perspective. He's getting $60 million this year. Um, it does, however, right, affect the, the actual transaction itself and the timing of it and the compensation coming back for it. it it's a major, major driving factor. It's why Jalen Ramsey went for a third, although I'm still not positive that is all that the Los Angeles Rams could have ascertained. But obviously, when you bring term, when you bring guaranteed money with you, and it's in the teens or in the 20s or in the 50s or in the 59s, it's going gonna, it's gonna to affect what you can get back. Now, there's an awful lot of smart people out there, many of them who have ties to the Green Bay Packers, using the word leverage. Um, and their immediate takeaway to Aaron Rodgers speaking yesterday was, my God, Green Bay is going to get a haul now because of how this is going down, because of the, I'm ready to go. I'm just waiting on the teams to do it. In other words, all the pressures on the jets to say yes. I I agree, but there's a lot more involved to that. You can't just say that's one. That's the only way to look at this. All right. The reason Jalen Ramsey went for a third round pick isn't just that he brought a one year, $17 million guaranteed salary that had to get turned into two for 35 and a half based on the way it went. That's not the only reason. A major reason why Jalen Ramsey didn't get more than a third round pick is a, the Rams started to debacle their roster, right? So they, they put a a flag in the moon saying, guess what? We, uh, we are establishing the fact that two years ago is no longer existing, that we have a solid quarterback situation, but a roster around him right now that is, underachieving, deteriorating, et cetera. We have a star linebacker who is in the last year or two of his career and Bobby Wagner, who has asked to leave because he's reading the room. You know, we've got one or two more years of Aaron Donald, probably one. 
And they started to cut, right? Leonard Floyd, Bobby Wagner, Allen Robinson's on the trade block. They're moving on from pieces left and right. And when you do that, you now have labeled yourself as subtracting, not adding. And then you have Jalen Ramsey with the eyeball emojis and you have Jalen Ramsey responding to tweets that are, that are referencing his, him as a trade candidate or as a release candidate and people talking about the dead cap and people talking about the compensation that could come back and all that stuff bubbles all up. And you can say, nobody looks at that stuff. It's just Twitter. It's, it's false. Okay. It's just false. You know, the narrative, especially when it's a narrative to truth affects the truth and Jalen Ramsey's compensation is lower because everybody in the world knew the Rams wanted to and maybe had to get rid of him from a cap and cash perspective. It's a fact. The Green Bay Packers have to get rid of Aaron Rodgers. They have to. They didn't have to do this originally. We you, Anybody who watched yesterday or, or at least took the bullet points away understand that at some point in time, Aaron Rodgers at least entertained the idea of considering Green Bay again. And maybe they did too. And then at some point in time, that turned into, we're going to shop him a little bit, see what's out there. And we'll bring some ideas back to him. And now we're here. And now it's, I want to play for the Jets. Yep. Green Bay has a quarterback. The Jets do too. Okay. And I understand Zach Wilson was an abomination last year and for most of the year before. I'm with you. Okay. We don't know what Jordan Love is. And if anything, Jordan Love has the upcoming deadline here. Not Zach Wilson, not the Jets, not Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers' deadline is September 1st. <laughs> okay. That's when that option bonus has to be exercised. And if it doesn't, if it isn't exercised, the cap hit jumps to 60s. Okay. Jordan, Jordan Love's fifth-year option has to be exercised by May 2nd, I believe, is the date. They're going to exercise it. I'm not going to screw around with this. They want him to be the quarterback. I, I, I'm not trying to massage the actual workings and the actual truths here. But it's not like the Green Bay Packers are sitting here saying, we can do whatever we want now for the next six months. It's, it's way more complicated than that. And I'm going to break it down like I did the tweet. Okay. Right now, Aaron Rodgers accounts for 36 and change on the cap. 36.1. 31.6, excuse me. If they trade him tomorrow, and it's possible they trade him tomorrow. Tomorrow's the beginning of the exercise date for that, uh, that option. That'll balloon to 40.3 in dead cap. So they're going to lose almost $9 million just to trade him, assuming they're not taking on any additional money in, in terms of some of that option bonus getting split up. Very much possibility, by the way, even though everybody's screaming that the Packers have unlimited leverage. You can't say that they may retain salary and then in the next sentence say, but they've got all the leverage. <laughs> Those two things are, are counteractive oxymorons. So trading him tomorrow, trading him before June 1st, loses them $9 million of cap. Well, that's not a great situation. Okay. And I realize that they never get involved, Green Bay, early on in free agency. But of course, it's been nothing but a long snapper to a three-year contract and a lot of uh, you know restricted tenders and, and exclusive rights re-signings. That's, that's par for the course for Green Bay. But this isn't a roster that's ready to win a Super Bowl. You know, 
And if Jordan Love is coming in, there's work to be done here. So losing nine million a cap, not great. If they wait and make this a June second trade, something a lot of people are predicting now. Yep, it drops down to fifteen point eight a dead cap. Obviously, the, the remaining twenty five million moves to twenty twenty four. That's its own animal. Do you want to mess with twenty twenty four right now? Because guess what, Jordan Love's fifth year option, twenty something, is going to live in twenty twenty four. So his cap rises significantly. Now. Aaron Jones probably falls off. Bakhtiari probably falls off. There's excessive uh, one-year treatment here to this roster. But do you want to do you want to take this lump on right now, Green Bay, or do you want to split this thing up for now, knowing you have to take a lot of it later, 2024? Not to mention, if you're waiting until June 2nd, the 2023 draft is no longer available to you. So some of those immediate holes you need to fill will not be filled, you know, because of compensation you think you'd be getting right now. I've heard quite a, few, a lot of people say the 2024 draft is setting up to be a better draft than this draft. Guess what? I hear that every year. <laughs> okay. If we're talking about quarterbacks, sure. It looks like there's a couple of absolute ballers next year. And, and who knows there aren't this year. All right. We get this stuff wrong 50% of the time. 50% of the time, the people that do draft work 365 days a year are dead wrong. Not blaming them. It's just a fact. It's like the weather. It's like me predicting a contract projection. Okay. It's hit and miss. There's a lot of factors involved that either you can't predict and or get thrown off in the process. If they have holes they want to plug right now and getting an extra second and an extra third right now would help that immediately, then you just do it now and you take the dead cap hit now. The leverage isn't in one side is stronger than the other. The leverage is in how they want to handle their, their business, the Green Bay Packers. In my opinion, and I'm not looking at their draft board, if I can get a two and a three, and take on 40.3 million of dead cap right now, I'm doing it. I'm trading him tomorrow. Tomorrow. The second I can, I'm, I'm available to do so with that option bonus. I'm not waiting until June 2nd. I'm not splitting this thing up. This team is not Super Bowl ready, especially with the unknown of Jordan Love. And nobody should be considering it that way, even though, you know, Lions may take a step back. Vikings may take a step back. We all know how this works. Bears are in limbo. So I just don't know that the leverage that we talk about here is really that damn important. Okay. That's all I'm saying. It's a little bit frustrating to see stuff like that when I think you're just trying to bulk up Aaron Rodgers even more. Something McAfee spent a whole lot of time doing yesterday. You know, we don't need to do that. This guy's already an alpha. Okay. He knows the situation. And by the way, I thought he handled it pretty darn well. I enjoyed watching him yesterday you know, a little long-winded at times and, you know, the greatest of all time Packers stuff. I'm not sure that had to be said. I think that's just kind of comes with the equation, but I, I thought it was thoughtful. And I, I thought he actually understood that he might've tampered himself a little bit there and caught himself and, and, you know, kind of in mid conversation, got himself back on track with the whole jet stuff and understanding that the Packers still own his rights and his contract and that there's a process to be had here. I thought he was fairly thoughtful. You know, some of the media stuff got out of hand. That I just, I throw that stuff away. Um, I don't think leverage is the right conversation right now. Unless you are affiliated with the Packers and you're trying like hell to get more for a 39-year-old quarterback with a $60 million guaranteed salary. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so in my personal opinion, that sentence right there, 
is all the leverage talk we should have. The Jets know what they're getting into, and it's reckless. This is a reckless trade for age, for injury factor, for and certainly for contract. It's not just sixty million this year. All right, there's an option bonus next year of forty-seven million, which is injury guaranteed. Where's that conversation? Okay, where's the conversation that the Jets give up a first and a third? Because let's just say the leverage is actually there. Aaron Rodgers goes, gets his ass kicked in the AFC East, suffers an unfortunate injury, knock on wood, and now can't pass a physical this time next year. Now there's $47 million guaranteed to him via injury. Now, can he retire to to and say, I'm I'm excluding that? Sure. Does that sound like Aaron Rodgers to you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. There's a hell of a lot going on here. Okay. There's a hundred million dollars at stake when you're talking about 59 million this year and 47 million in 2024. Okay. Let's just say everything goes cleanly. He plays for one year. It's a great situation. They make it to the divisional round of the playoffs, and that's it. Kind of a typical Aaron Rodgers year over the past decade. He decides he just his body just can't can't do it anymore, right? He has one of these uh, these off season moments where he tries to put himself through the rigor again, and it doesn't work this time. He just he just knows his brain and his body aren't aren't on the same page. Walks away. Now it's the Jets who have forty three point seven million dollars of dead cap to deal with, and you know they're going to probably float him through June, let him retire after June. And take it on as a, as a post June first retirement, but that's still a huge number, <laughs> okay? So it's sixty million cash this year, forty three million dead cap, not cash, no more cash unless the injury guarantee kicks in, and then we're talking about double that, forty three point seven dead cap after twenty twenty three. So, will they have any kind of security that this is a two year thing? I don't know. I. I after watching him for an hour yesterday, there's no way I took that away from it. If anything, he is month to month here, right? And if things go go poorly in New York, which isn't the craziest predict, prediction in the world, even though it's a solid-ass roster, if things go poorly, right? What if it's a Russell Wilson type year? Well, then it's all bad, right? And then it's the biggest risk and swing and risk ever. And you're paying $60 million for nothing. <laughs> Nothing. So the leverage conversation is crazily overrated to me. This is more about how do the Green Bay Packers want to operate themselves as a business, not in the business of Aaron Rodgers, in the business of the Green Bay Packers in 2023 and in 2024. My recommendation to them is do it now, clean the slate, take all the dead cap this year, because there's a hell of a lot falling off next year. And Jordan Love's contract gets expensive next year on the fifth year option. And if you're going to guarantee, you're going to exercise that and guarantee it in a couple of weeks here, and I believe they will, that's the conversation they have to be working around, not Aaron Rodgers, Jordan Love. So turn the page, understand what the, what the process is for you. Take it all right now. Get your second and your third. Don't sit around for a first round pick that's never going to be there, in my opinion, in my opinion. And uh, move forward with an amplified draft board that you can work some magic with and try to find some lightning in a bottle and uh, progress this roster. Maybe keep some things intact going forward for the next three to four years. That's my take.
it's absolutely the right time for this to happen, by the way. Aaron Rodgers is right. The Packers are right. But I don't think we need to overdo it, right? Even though that is literally the basis on which Aaron Rodgers lives. Okay. Okay. Let's get to this free agent week in a nutshell. Um, Some numbers off the top. uh, A couple of comments about the trades. And then some notable contract breakdowns. That's it. Going to keep it short and sweet. We've got lots of time to talk about adding some tractions and all that stuff team by team. And I'll, of course, do uh, some quick and dirty pieces on spotrate.com to, to complement those conversations. But uh, for now, I, I just want to give a first take. That's really all I want to do here. Um, initially speaking, you know, it's kind of a rat race, right? I, I'm throwing contracts in. I, I, I know the full terms and I have to bring them down to reality a little bit. And, and then the last step is the full breakdown with the guaranteed structure, right? And, and that's the obviously most important stuff. But early, uh, early numbers are a little scary, if I have to put it mildly. So the terms have piled up. You know, we had a billion in Monday, okay, in the tampering period. We're now at about $2.4 billion of total value, which means absolutely jack squat to the NFL, right? They're just numbers that, that sit there that could possibly be met, but never will. There's, there's probably not a single contract here of two years or more that will actually get through the entire contract. It's just freaking how this league works now. If I look at practical guarantees, and again, there's a lot of holes here. You know, I'm only about... I'd say 60, you know, two thirds of the way through on breakdowns, just because some of these things aren't officially official yet. Some of these things are still being recorded. And to some degree, I just don't have the full breakdown. Practical guarantees. We are right at that 49% mark, which is all right. You know, anything around the 50 mark, that's decent. You know, you want some of your bigger contracts to be in the 60s. They are. Um, Derek Carr's deal, for instance, is two thirds guaranteed. Tremaine Edmonds with the Bills, seventy percent guarantees. Jawan Taylor with the the Chiefs got seventy five percent guaranteed. That was certainly a a bidding war there for his services. Um, so I'm okay with that number, and that number is going to vary a little bit here as more of these breakdowns come, but also as some of the one year, you know, a lot of these one year deals start to hit, which is coming. I'll try to keep things in context uh, in the next time, next discussion with this and go multi-year and go maybe three or more years where do those guarantees live. Cause obviously that's where the most impact is made, you know, and the potential out factor. It's the guarantee at signing that is troubling, right? Uh, I've mentioned quite a bit. If you've been a, you know, a listener here for a couple of years, we've been on a really nice trend with guarantee at sign numbers approaching that 50 mark. You know, we were at, I think three or four years ago, we were down near 40%. And I believe last year, if I'm correct, it was like 47.9% after it was all said and done, almost 48% guaranteed at sign on free agent contracts. That's a phenomenal number. And I thought for sure we were going to keep that trend going because agents just seem to be demanding it. We're at 33% right now with you know, a really good chunk of contracts in here, dozens of contracts. That's a terrifying number. Now, I'm not going to be naive. There are, there are certain cases here where a, a guarantee isn't necessarily at signing, but something's going to vest next year. 
So there's that middle ground between practical guarantee, guarantee at signing where players definitely going to get that money, but they got to wait till next March to vest it. Can't be guaranteed at signing, but it's certainly a practical guarantee. So there are those that exist and I've seen maybe half a dozen or so just off the top of my head. I'm looking at names here that have those. So let's just even say those are included and we're at 36%. That ain't good. Okay. It's not, it's going to take a lot, a lot of high impact, low contracts here over the next couple of days to get us even to 40%. That's troubling. We're looking at at least a 10% decrease in guaranteeing at signing. Uh, it's going to be the story I run with if we stay this way all, all off season. What the hell happened here? How can we have a league that is so prosperous with everybody making gazillions of dollars with every franchise valuing into the, you know, basically a, a billion more where they were a decade ago, if not more in some of these cases. And, t- and these players, right? Players that hit the open market can't establish themselves half guaranteed contracts, let alone full, right? H- how are we having the Lamar Jackson conversation for a full contract when we're getting, we're not even getting half contracts right now, not even close, not even close. I mean, the majority of my, my potentials are, are two years, the majority, three, three to five year contracts, two years and out. That's been standard for the, his, the history of the league. There's a lot of ones. There's a lot of threes that are ones. There's a lot of fours that are ones. It's bad news. Okay. And my guess is that there's an answer to it. My initial opinion is, are, are, t- are players doing this on purpose? Are they allowing teams to sign BS fluffy contracts knowing they are going to run themselves out after a year because they want to be back in the open market? They want to continue to go, 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 go as the cap increases. If that's the case, we are going at this the wrong way, people. Okay, You need to take that one-year deal or it's a one-year deal with a massive second year that is almost never going to be taken so that you can absolutely force your way out. This is the wrong way to do it. You know, this looks like 2016 NFL. So I'm worried about that quite a bit from a player's labor perspective, because I mean, not only the owners, you know, putting their foot down on the fully guaranteed quarterback, which isn't even in this conversation. I mean, you could, you could take all quarterback talk away from everything I just said. They are, they are living their own lives right now, financially speaking, in this league. But is everybody else being affected this much by it? A $50 million quarterback means I can't even guarantee two years on an outside linebacker anymore. I mean, is Leonard Floyd even going to get a three-year contract? Is he going to get a two-year guarantee? I'm not sure he is. I'm not sure he is. Bobby Wagner was the best linebacker in football last year. He was the best linebacker in football. He's now been released. I'm not sure he's getting more than one for nine when you talk about a guaranteed contract. It's possible. (laughs) It's very possible. I'm, I'm concerned with that stuff. All right. Everybody else should be trickling up at least consistently. And if not, right, if the deal is the quarterbacks are blowing everything out of the water, which means everybody has to slow the pace down a little bit, at the very least, a slower pace and increased salary should equal two thirds guaranteed, you know, as a trade off. Where's the compromise here? Agents got to do better on this. They got to do better. These players need two-thirds guaranteed contracts, especially if we're talking two years. It's got to happen. And if, if the deal is we want to be one and done and we want incentives to give us good, a good one-year payout and then we want to reset the market with a signing bonus in 2024, then just take a one-year contract and let them demand them to use void years for cap purposes. 
we got to be better at this. This number is terrifying. 33%. It's not good. It's going to get better. It's not going to get 40% better. We're not getting there. So I'm going to run some real numbers on this. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to include those likely guarantees, right? Likely guarantee at signing second years that have to vest in next March. And I'm going to do some justice to it and I'll see where the number stands then. But uh, that's all I have to talk about here with this free agent table. If, if you've looked at the free agent contract tracker on spot track, um, not good. 2.37 billion, 792 million guaranteed at sign. You can do the math. All right. Some of these trades, Jalen Ramsey, obviously the big one. I mentioned it already. I thought the compensation was low. I thought the compensation was low, even for the contract that was coming and the demand of a new contract set to come. None of that should matter. This is a 29-year-old star cornerback. Yeah, maybe he's declining a little bit. He's going to an unbelievable defense right now and a really, really nice Miami Dolphins team. And I thought he got a great contract. It works for everybody. He gets himself over $35 million fully guaranteed over the next two years. The cap hit drops from $17 million down to $4.1. Obviously, that's good news for the team. And, uh, you know, they'll restructure next year a little bit and keep him around and make it a little harder to leave in, th- in year three. A third round pick for this is crazy. Now, yeah, I, they, threw, they threw in a blocking tight end as well. Um, again, this is leverage based on discussion. The Rams decided who they were going to be this offseason fairly early. Bobby Wagner's decision to mutually part ways, right, was the beginning of this, and it hasn't stopped since. So the, I, can't, I can't imagine the Rams are happy outside of not paying the $17 million fully guaranteed this year. What else could you be happy about? You know? I mean, they're taking on $19 million of dead cap right now. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so this was not a cap casualty situation by any means. This was... We don't want to pay the cash. We want to move on. We want to get something back in return. That something is the number one, number 77 pick. Should be a day one starter for them if they play their cards right. And they certainly don't have many other draft picks to go with it. So if you want to say that they've, they're doing this as a way just to get some kind of draft for the next two seasons, I, I agree with that. I mean, they have forfeited many, many top 100 picks here just to build this roster up. But can't be happy with that compensation. But I think all-encompassing all Jalen Ramsey did well for himself. The Dolphins obviously added a phenomenal piece on a situation that doesn't break their bank too much. And he's basically making the same AAV uh, that he had left on this contract, just over a, a two-year guarantee now. So pretty solid stuff either way, except for that Rams compensation. But, you know, that's sort of the bed that they made. So now they have to lie in it. Darren Waller, speaking of drama, my goodness, I'm not even going to touch on why this happened. Uh, you can have your own opinions. You can read all the uh, the tabloids and connect whatever dots you need to connect. All I know is uh, this guy has not been much of a factor for 18 months. Injuries have really started to pile up. He bullied his way into a new contract last year. I know his, his agent did a lot of work just to get something front-loaded. And uh, there's plenty of term left on it, all-encompassing. But it's a lot of fluff. He's fully guaranteed basically through this year. Um, it's 8.25 million guaranteed right now. The rest of it locks in tomorrow morning. So it'll be 11 million for one year. And then a whole lot of, we'll see. It's basically 12, 13, and 15 non-guaranteed with no way to guarantee him before the season starts. So if he's great at 31 years old, then you have to start thinking about what do we do next? Because there's three full years of term left. If it doesn't work out, giving up the number 100 pick for a Giants team that I think is really starting to put this together, but isn't really ready to splash, you know, 
Like this is a this is a high risk move in my opinion. It's a high risk move for a team that really could have used those first three round of picks to continue to move this train forward properly. You've got Jones under contract for two more years. So I get it. The thinking is we've got to put build everything into these two years, everything possible. And this is an immediate upgrade to Daniel Bellinger and a couple of other options. It's also a really damn good tight end draft, right? <laughs> really good. So I, that's counter counterproductive to me, but I get it. I, I really do. This is a player that has made an impact on a lot of offenses, a few offensive coordinators, and now a couple of quarterbacks. So he could become a very, very nice crutch and safety valve for a player like Daniel Jones, who clearly needs that in his style of play. I'm not going to kill it too much. I'm swaying on the negative on this one. Let's just put it that way. I'm swaying on the negative. I think, you know, if, if his salary was half this, fine. But it's not. You know, it's a near $12 million cap hit. They can restructure that part of it. But they're paying him $11 million plus this year. It's not nothing. That's, that's an expense. That, that is an expense. And if it doesn't pay off, as he hasn't over the past two seasons in Las Vegas, then again, it's a, it's a big boomer bust situation. Stefan Gilmore to the Dallas Cowboys. I, I love this one. <laughs> okay. Now, when you get in the fifth round pick, I get it. He probably was uh, demanding himself out of there anyway because the Colts are in the Rams boat here. They're starting to move a lot of pieces. And there's a wide receiver and running back on that team that I think some teams will be feverishly calling about soon in Jonathan Taylor and Michael Pittman Jr. But Gilmore gets out. He brings uh, a little over $9.9 million with him to the Dallas Cowboys. That is not guaranteed right now. And uh, we'll see where this goes from here. There's a $1 million roster bonus due in the next couple of days here. You got to think there's going to be some wiggle room here. It's possible. He's 33 years old. Actually, he just he's about 32 and a half right now. They're probably just going to ride this out, maybe restructure it a little bit to, to clear up some 2023 cap. But this may just be a rental move. And for that, I love it. He gave up pick 180. You know, there are worse situations out there for sure. The Houston Texans acquire Shaq Mason. Uh, I feel like they love doing de- deals with Tampa Bay here at this point in time. It's Shaq Mason and a seventh for a sixth. That's just a cap dump. So they get themselves a sixth round pick and uh, a situation where they get to move on from 8.5 million a cap. I have nothing else to say on that. So it's definitely how they have to operate right now. It's definitely more subtraction than addition. They're going to try to hold the fort down in a bad division. They brought in Baker to compete. There's a couple of running back signings coming. I would imagine they need a, an offensive lineman or five, but um, cap dump. That's all I read this one at. Johnny Smith leaving the New England Patriots. Um, all the talk is he's reuniting with Arthur Smith. The Falcons now have a great two tight end punch. They're a phenomenal roster if their quarterback can play ball. Yep, I agree with all that. We have to talk about, again, it's been too long, just how bad this John o. Smith contract was for the New England Patriots. That's a team that pays nobody. And the one player they actually paid, Stefan Gilmer, was great. It, it was one of the better free agent contracts in the history of that franchise. And really, in this past decade, Stefan Gilmer was excellent for the New England Patriots. Now, didn't end great, but you know, all things have to come to an end. This contract is epically bad. I just got, you know, I just got off my soapbox with all these three and four year contracts that are going to be one years after with the potential out and with the low guarantee situation. John o. Smith in 2021, after they had signed Hunter Henry, 
Okay, so they were doing two for one here. Got four years, 50 million with 31.25 million guaranteed at sign. Now, amazing for him. Okay. They guaranteed 6.25 million of this year's salary at signing. Two and a half years fully guaranteed at signing. It's freaking unbelievable. I mean, we're seeing quarterback contracts that Daniel Jones doesn't have that. Geno Smith doesn't have that. We're seeing starting quarterbacks who don't get anything in year three at any point in time. John W. Smith got it. The second tight end signed by the Patriots in 2021. This contract was a mess. So the fact that they got anything just to get out of this thing, let alone a seventh round pick, right? You can call it basically a free trade. No. Okay. This is a player that was no longer wanted on this roster who had $11 million cash coming to him. And they basically took on, you know, 13 million of dead cap here just to move on from this. This was a cash dump and a roster spot dump. No question about it. Now he's in a better spot. So this works out well for him. And by the way, kudos to him and the agent for the contract. You know, I'm not, I am not sitting here knocking the player side of this at all. I'm shocked it's the Patriots who did this. And I'm shocked at the total structure of it. It's, it's a just, it's one of the stronger non-quarterback contracts we've seen in free agency over the past five seasons. And I have my foot down on that kind of conversation. And now the Patriots are, are out of it. So getting anything back for it is a huge win for them, even though it's going to be a throw-in seventh-round pick that they com probably combine with another seventh-round pick to move up in the sixth round or something like that. The number one overall pick. <clears throat> the reason I don't want to go too deep on this is, A, I believe the primary purpose of this trade, and you may, sound, may think I'm freaking crazy, was DJ Moore. <laughs> okay? I think that getting this player on this roster with this quarterback was the primary deal of this offseason for them. And I think they tried to do it at the deadline in November. So let's just take that side of it, put it in a bubble, and say, huge success. The reason I'm not going to go any farther on this and try to grade draft picks that don't exist yet is I'm not sure that Carolina is done. I think they are shopping this number one pick. I think they know who they want to take. I think they know who Houston wants to take. And Arizona is sitting there at three with a lot of clout right now because they're not going to take the quarterback. You know, they're thinking defense. They're thinking offensive line. There's a lot of options there for them. And there's people calling Arizona. There's no question about it, about getting into that number three slot. So the people that are calling number three, right, can simply be thinking about, well, what if we were going number one? And what, what more do we have to give up to go from three to one? I believe that's a huge possibility. I believe the Carolina Panthers also, instead of actually trading the pick, could be talking about drafting a player who's going to be traded, right? The Phillip Rivers, Eli Manning type situation. We'll take your guy. You take our guy. Let's do this after the fact and save ourselves a little bit of minutia. Very possible situation. So I think this is extremely fluid. I think there's a lot of conversations happening behind the scenes here. But at the end of the day, if they just take CJ Stroud number one overall, it's good for everybody. This is good for everybody. All right. The Bears need as many draft picks as humanly possible because their defense is a disaster, kind of self-inflicted, and their offensive line remains a big question mark. So should they be adding weapons right now? Here's the only reason I have to say yes to some degree. They have to know who Justin Fields is right now. It's very important. 
before it gets way too complicated. So you have to at least give him one superior player at that position. So now you've got DJ Moore. Now you've got Cole Komet, who really took a step forward next year. I think it's a contract in a couple of weeks here. You can pair him with Mooney, who I like a lot. You know, Claypool, I, I can't get anywhere with him yet, but he's a guy at least. They're going to add some running backs here. You know, Homer from Seattle is not enough. They're going to add some firepower to, to offset that situation. So it's not going to be a heavily overpaid set of weapons around Justin Field. You know, they're still going to attack the trenches, the offensive line, the defensive line, and certainly the secondary as much as possible here over the next couple of weeks and months. But you do have to improve the weapons so that you can at least assess Justin Fields better. Maybe not as well as you did Jalen Hurts last year, right? Or as Burrow was able to be assessed a couple of years ago. And Josh Allen, similar with the stuff on Diggs trade. You know, I guess it's sort of in that boat, right? Josh Allen didn't become Josh Allen until you started to see things at the end of the season. And then you dropped stuff on Diggs in his lap and said, let's go. And then he went, right? Justin Fields started to show some things at the end of last season. Now they're dropping DJ Moore in his lap and they're saying, let's go. I think there's a very similar outcome happening here. Now, are the Bears ready to be the Bills? I don't think so. But simple conversation about the number one overall pick. Carolina's got options. And I think the Bears have done enough in adding draft picks and in adding that show-me player for Justin Fields to just say it's worth our time. No matter what happens from here out with those picks, having the ability to properly assess Justin Fields with this player now is worth our time. So it's an A for me. All right, really quickly, a couple of free agent contracts here. Jesse Bates is the one that stands out the most to me. I don't have the breakdown, of course. I'm not even sure it's actually official yet, but uh, it sounds like it's about 36 over two years, which is really good coin for him coming off the franchise tag. You know, the Bengals weren't going to go that route. Um, was anybody going to go that route? That's my question. It sure seems like the, uh, the, the rest of the safety market below him is cratering. Right? Why is Jordan Poyer returning to the Bills if Miami and Dallas were supposed to be in? Why are we seeing trades for safeties versus outright signings of some decent safeties on the open market? Got to wait that one out a little bit before I assess it. And I got to see the Bates breakdown. But that one seems big. I'm hoping it's not the JC Jackson move. That was like an immediate announcement. Was huge money on the open market. And obviously, from injuries perspective, has been a mess for the Chargers so far. I don't think it'll be that. Bates does have that kind of inconsistent play to him though. But look, the Falcons needed every defensive player humanly possible. This is a good one. I'm not going to crush the contract. That's all I'm going to say about it. Um, the offensive tackle stuff is real, not going away, even though I do think it's going to become devalued a little bit as guard play and stuff kicks in more and more and more. The McGlinchey contract is excellent. And obviously it's a team that had to do it. The Juwan Taylor contract is outstanding especially knowing it's the Chiefs who just punted on Orlando Brown, who just got himself 43 million or so guaranteed from the Bengals. The Bengals, Kansas City Chiefs dynamic now is phenomenal. I love it. I love everything about it. It's even getting better now in the offseason. Uh, so let's keep an eye on that for sure. I want to focus on Brown just a second here. Uh, this is a player that A, was traded for two, two first round picks and then some came in, was franchise tagged, played on that franchise tag unwillingly. Before that 2022 season, he was a $23, $24 million per year player. He was going to be the preeminent next young left tackle to sign a top-of-the-market contract. The Chiefs basically said out loud, nope, and then 
he declined a little bit in 2022 or maybe just devalued himself a little bit on that roster. And not only did he not get the second franchise tag, he hit the open market. And in my opinion, <laughs> this Bengals contract, four for 64 and change, uh, you know, about, about two-thirds of that guaranteed, it's a really good right tackle contract. Now, I think he's going to play some left tackle with the Jonah Williams situation, but they're also going to move on from Lyle Collins, their right tackle, for cap purposes. And I do believe that there's a distinct possibility Orlando Brown is playing right tackle for this team. Now, maybe that's baked into the cake, and part of the signing is I'm going to play left tackle for you. Maybe I don't know. But all I know is this. The top left tackles in the league make $24 a year, million a year. And he's making 16 So over the course of 18 months, right, he's gone from absolutely at the top to somewhere in the middle, financially speaking. Still a lot of coin, still good coin. He's joining a hell of a team. So there's a chance he took less to join the Bengals. I don't know that behind the scenes yet. But crazy devaluation. Crazy from the trade compensation that said top of the market, from the first year play that said top of the market to where we are today, which is middle of the road. What else? We had a lot of Bills talk. Uh, I mentioned Jordan Poyer coming back. I don't yet have those numbers. I am fascinated to see what Buffalo was able to retain Jordan Poyer at. They did not retain Tremaine Edmonds, and the writing was absolutely on the wall with this one. And I told you flat out loud, this is one of those situations where the math and the eye test say something differently than what the market will. And if we had him at 11, knowing 14 was probably right, somebody was going to come in bigger swinging. Maybe three or four teams were going to jack this thing up. He got 18. Okay. He got 18, four for 72 from those Bears who had to replace Roquan Smith. He's getting 37 million guaranteed right now. He's going to get 50 out of this thing. He's going to get more than 50 when you're building some of the workouts. So this is a phenomenal deal. It's going to be three for 57 at the end of the day. Huge, huge money. Age was a factor, right? He's not even 25 years old yet. The Bears needing defensive players everywhere was a factor. You know, the Falcons were considering this. You know, probably some of these other teams at the bottom were thinking about this. Um, it's a strong move. It's a very, very strong deal. We knew this was coming. This was the type of player who can come in and captain a young defense. So there's all of that baked into the 18 million a year. It's not just the eye test. It's not just the production. Uh, so this was one we saw coming, but uh, certainly not a number that the Bills were going to th- even consider matching here. Um, Javon Hargrave, last one. The 49ers do this every year. They throw one contract at us in free agency that just makes us go, how do they keep doing this? Here they are. He's going to stand up next to Nick Bosa and Eric Armstead and a couple of other giants on that line. And it's going to be just the worst for, for that NFC. It's going to be the worst. This is an excellent player, just over 30 years old, getting now $22.5 million a year. And uh, it's a great deal. Right, this one actually 20, 21 million a year. Excuse me, I'm getting my defensive tackles mixed up here. 21 million a year. He gets 40 million fully guaranteed at sign from the 49ers. So we can call it two for 20. Two out of 20. The Nick Bosa contract is forthcoming and it's going to be bigger. It's going to be much bigger than this. It's going to be approaching that 30 million a year. And this defensive line is going to be unbelievably paid. So I cannot wait to run those numbers and have a whole Fernandez conversation, especially once the quarterback conversation starts to turn itself around because Sam Darnold has joined the fold and everybody's cheap and everybody's young. 
And we're going to see just how damn good that Kyle Shanahan offense is because they continue to just win ball games with whoever's throwing the ball out there. Fascinating roster. Got a lot more fascinating with Hargrave in the fold. Okay. Back to the number crunching for me. Back to the data input for me. I will try to get back to this uh, Sunday at some point in time with another roundup of where things are. Hopefully some more numbers. I'll, I'll readdress this guaranteed conversation. And uh, coming up next, segment number two. How about a baseball conversation? Sportico's MLB franchise valuations are out. Cousin Dan and Scott Allen are here to talk about that. All right, Dan. Sportico released their 2023 Major League Baseball valuations. Um, you've got the list here. You're taking a look at it. Any surprises at the top? Well, um, I think it was a little bit surprised. Well, I, I, I don't, that's, there's no clean answer for that. There's a, a, my biggest surprise I would say is um, that everything, you know, all these, most of these teams sort of regressed in a lot of ways, but at the same time, I'm totally, I'm not totally surprised at that either. Um, just based on the state of um, the world we live in and the, the markets all around the world. Um are kind of down. So the fact that um, team valuations across the board um, have, even if they didn't go in reverse, the, um, the, the value did not explode as it has in uh, certain past years. Right. So we've got the Yankees at $7.13 billion followed up by the Los Angeles Dodgers, 5.24 billion. Boston Red Sox, $5.21 billion. Fourth, Chicago Cubs, $4.69 billion. And then San Francisco Giants, $3.81 billion. Out of those five, um, I I personally think the Red Sox, I mean, I know they've been up there, but for you know a, a market that they're trying to sort of, what, shrink themselves and not have to pay as much and try to, you know, pull back on, you know, getting into the luxury tax and that kind of stuff. You know, kind of surprised me. Surprises me to an extent that they're in the third spot. Um, out of those five, are there any surprises, or is that pretty much chalk in your mind? I mean, you follow the baseball way more than me per se. Yeah, in terms of market size, I think it aligns pretty well. The Boston thing is a little bit of an eyebrow raiser, just based on um, like the moves that we have seen um, in recent years. But at the same time. Um, they are basically a corporate corporation in itself, uh, uh, you know, like a public entity. Um, so the fact that um, they're high in value does not really surprise me. Um, on that other, on that same note, the other, you know, public team, if you will, is the Atlanta Braves, who come in um, at seventh overall at just under three, um, two point seven five billion. So. Um, I think that aligns with everything based on market size. Like I said before, um, the Boston thing is slightly surprising, but I mean that it, it, tons of World Series pedigree there. Um, I mean, it, it doesn't surprise me that that franchise organization holds value, um, regardless of what we've, uh, you know, recency bias might, might make us believe. The Mets are in sixth at $2.82 billion, up 5.2% from the previous year. Are you surprised that they, with the amount of spending and the overall um, what clout, I guess, at this point, the exposure, 
that they're not a, a little bit higher than that. I mean, they did grow 5.2%, but you know, with, with all that spotlight, I, I kind of thought I would have saw, seen them higher than 2.8, maybe even a little closer to the 3 billion mark. Yeah, interesting point. I guess I don't have a great answer for that because I might have thought um, something along the same lines. Maybe there's a little bit of a delay. I mean, Steve Cohen is a relatively new owner. These moves are relatively new-ish in terms of bringing up the overall value of the franchise. Um, I mean, we we know the Mets are always going to be the little brother in that in that town. Um, so there's some of that going on, at, you know, at play as well. But yeah, I I would have thought maybe a little bit higher but you know we do see them as one of the um the greater changes year over year here from 2022 um we're showing that they're the sixth biggest change from 2022 to 2023 so um the sheer number might not blow us away but um the value increase alone uh shows that maybe things are headed in that direction yeah, that's a good transition. So if we take a look at the actual percentage of change, Atlanta was number one at 8.3%, followed by Houston at 7.5%. The Dodgers, 7.2%, then Toronto, Chicago Cubs, New York Mets, San Francisco Giants, etc. So, I mean, Atlanta and Houston being up there with the largest percent change, I don't think we're we, that's too much of a surprise with uh, how their history has been, you know, World Series and, you know, they've sort of what done things the right way in a certain extent. Atlanta has all this homegrown stuff. Um, so is that pretty much on par in your mind as far as Atlanta and Houston having grown the most over the last year? Yeah, so I am going to assume that this has a lot to do with um those two being in the World Series in 2021. Um, I know Atlanta's market value exploded. Or like they're, So me alluding earlier, Atlanta is one of the only publicly owned teams that we get to sort of see behind the curtain in terms of their finances. Um, you know, when during COVID, when all of the owners across the league were crying that they were broke and not making money, um, we ended up seeing the Atlanta Braves finances, which stomped all, all over that. They made plenty of money during that season um and we know that it, after they won the world series that their value went up quite a bit so I, I think that the trickle over is from that i do think you made a good point there um they've locked up their young talent long term i think it's very easy to count on this team um being a contender for multiple years um you know if not like another decade like we saw in the 90s and I think as a whole, that would bring the whole value of the franchise up. Um, elite front office, tons of talent, um, pretty good farm system, um, at least developmentally. I, I think there's a, I, I think it makes plenty of sense up top. Um, the Astros, we've seen, you know, them have success, sustained success here for quite some time. So, no, it doesn't surprise me too much um, that those two are up there in terms of year over year change. One of the things that I noticed in looking at these are the teams that grew the most were high payroll teams into the luxury tax. And then you go to the bottom and you see all of the low paying. Obviously, they're small markets, but there's a big discrepancy, at least from this year. And I know from seeing what Sportico and listening to what they said with these Major League Baseball uh, valuations was 
they're attributing some of the decline to the whole RSN situation. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you agree with that probably is the case why some of these smaller markets are having issues with their valuations having declined? Or do you think it could be attributed to something else? No, totally. I think that has to be part of it. Uh, we know a lot of the money, um, you know, with free agent spending, et cetera, extensions in recent years, like the, the spending has exploded in a lot of ways. And that has been directly tied to TV, um, these massive TV deals that we've seen. So <clears throat> with the uncertainty there, it, it doesn't surprise me at all that some of these small and mid-market teams that don't have um, the, the biggest TV contracts and rely on some of the bigger markets and revenue sharing, things like that, um, I, I think there is some uncertainty there, which would totally affect um, you know, their, the immediate valuations of those teams. Um, I don't actually think this is going to happen, but there's sort of like this undercurrent that some games for certain teams might not be on TV this year. I mean, that's, that's not going to happen. But the fact that it's even a topic two weeks um, out from the opening day is – kind of cause for concern. So um, yeah, as a whole, I'm just trying to make the point that when your biggest revenue stream has a ton of uncertainty surrounding it, these smaller market teams are going to have to kind of tighten the belt in the short term until they get a little bit more clarity there. Yeah, I, I agree with that, especially going into this season where they have their new schedule where every team plays everybody. I mean, it's not just you're playing your division, what, 19 plus times. You're, you're, you're going to be having teams like the, you know, the Angels are going to come out here to the East and play the Nationals. I don't know if that's true. I'd have to look up the schedule. But just in, as an example, we're now going to have teams playing every team. So that revenue stream is could potentially go up even more than in the past because now you're actually going to have – teams that you're not typically seeing or playing going up from that uh, eyeball standpoint. Yeah, that could definitely happen. Um, I think, I mean, we've heard them talk a lot about knocking down the TV blackout stuff, making it just putting the game in front of more eyes, um, which would, it's, it's going to have tangible value on the other side. It may take some time to see it through in these team valuations. But I think the more, you know, with rule changes, excitement around the game, if you get the game in front of people's eyes, they're, you know, that's that's only going to have positive effects down the line. So, so from what you've read, you, what you've heard, is Major League Baseball going to go the route of like the MLS where they they bid it out and it there are no blackouts whatsoever and they just stream every game? Or is it going to be a... Uh, you know, a, a compromise between the uh, the existing RSNs that already function fine and then Major League Baseball allowing games to be played. I know we're sort of getting off tangent, but um, I, I think it's important to know that these Sportico valuations, they are based off of everything from the team, from ticket sales to merchandise sales to the RSNs to concessions to you name it they their formula takes in everything so that's why i'm focusing on these rsns because i think it's a huge uh, you know portion of this revenue and why they're these teams have declined in value 
versus not having declined? Yeah, I, I don't, I really don't know where it goes from here. It sounds like they want to offer some sort of like current package, like, like the current MLB package now is out of market games. You can play a, pay a flat fee. Um, there is no in market package. It sounds like they're going to keep, they want to keep the out of market. Well, sorry, the, the quote big package would include all games or you could just specifically buy in your market. So you're a nationals fan. You could buy nationals games specifically, or you could pay for the expanded package, which gives you all games, which would also include in market games, which is different from now. Um, for instance, I live in Buffalo. I'm a Cleveland guardians fan. I'm technically, I'm three hours away from there, but I am technically in their TV market. I cannot watch or stream games because I'm in market. So that would be a change for me. Um, that if, um, they they allowed that that I would not have to go through hurdles to try and to try and watch the game. So it sounds like it's going to be some combination of that. There is still tons of variables that go into this. For instance, like the Yankees have um, Yes Network, the Mets have SNY, um, Baltimore and Washington, I believe, have some sort of goofy uh, TV fit deal that is really holding things up. There, there's a few other teams around the league that have these, um, you know, sort of their own networks and, and a whole revenue stream tied to those alone. So, I, I mean, separating those out, how they would handle those from like a national package. I have no idea how they're going to do this, but it is comforting to hear that they want to eliminate blackouts. That is, I mean, I'm a diehard baseball fan. It is a constant challenge for me to find certain games that I want to watch because I am in the midst of four different TV markets. So right. anytime that's pretty challenging. All right. Shifting gears. Let's look at the middle. There were three teams that didn't change at all. Their valuations stayed the same. According to Sportico, Texas, Tampa Bay, St. Louis, either of those three surprise you for why they haven't changed their, their market value based on, you know, their, their, players or just their market itself i mean me personally let me let me cut you off me personally i found texas to not have grown after what they have spent over the last couple years kind of surprising that their market value hadn't gone up um so i'll say that what do you think good point i was going to go to texas too i think this is another delayed reaction sort of thing um We've seen, we saw them spend in free agency last year. We saw them spend again this year. It seems like players want to go there because they have a, a, a plan in place, new stadium, um, new front office group. And it sounds like they're trying to do what Atlanta did around their new stadium, which is just build a ton of infrastructure to make it sort of like a destination, hotels, shopping, restaurants, et cetera. Um, so I think in the next couple of years, we're going to, I think Washington's like this too. I mean, you would know better, but sort of they put a stadium up and just developed the hell around it. Yes, and they did. it sounds like Texas is going to do the same thing. So I think in coming years, we're going to see that value explode. I mean, it's a huge, it's one of the biggest markets in the country. Um, I, I mean, location of the ballpark. I mean, I don't, I don't want to get into all that stuff, but the way that they're going, I would expect to see that. Um, valuation go up in the coming years here. 
Yeah, and I, there was a fourth. Kansas City also didn't have any uh, change at all. If we look at the uh, the teams that actually went down, there were 10 teams. I'll, I'll fire them off real quick here. Your Cleveland Guardians, Baltimore Orioles, Minnesota Twins, the Angels, the Reds, the Nationals, the uh, the Athletics, the Diamondbacks, the Pirates, and the Rockies. Rockies dropped the most. 4.2% from the previous year. Um, what Anything stand out there for you? Really only Washington, just because it's pretty easily the – well, I guess the Angels as well, but the, those two are the biggest markets by far in that group. Um, I, I But in the same breath, there's ownership questions around both of those organizations. So um, – not necessarily surprising, but I think in those group in that group specifically, um, really no surprises other than those two teams. I was, uh, uh, you know, but there is a reason for it. So yeah, yeah, and I made this an offline comment that you and I were going back and forth on. I find that interesting with those two teams. They were on the market. The, the, the more so with the Angels pulled off the market. The, the Nationals is still we're not really sure what's going on in 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 their area as far as if they really do want to sell or not. But the fact that it's gone down, you have to think a potential owner, new owner that would want to come in is going to want to buy low. And those ownership groups already in place would want to sell high. So there's a fine line in between of when when do you pull the trigger or not. And if you're dropping 2% from the previous year, that's probably a sign, you know, maybe wait a year so things can bounce back and figure out with the revenue sharing, the, these RSNs and, you know, ride out the storm and then sell. But maybe I'm reading too deep into that. Um, as far as the, you know, some of these teams like Arizona, they signed a Corbin Carroll extension. Washington, they signed an extension for a pre-arb, which is kind of rare for them to do, especially in what an eight-year deal, I believe it was for uh, Ruiz. Does that factor into? I, I know it's recent, so they may not have got into, but uh, their their formula. But are, are there any other players on some of these bottom teams that you could see they sign and it's going to help their valuation, or is it sort of it is what it is at this point? Int that's an interesting perspective, Scott. I hadn't really thought about that, but I like that point because Arizona, we've talked about it. I know we know Mike is a huge fan of Arizona it, it, this year and in coming years. I'm a big fan in the future. Um, I really like what they've done and where they're headed. Um, you start by locking up a guy like Corbin Carroll. If follow-up signings take place, you we might see – that team start to have success in the, in the valuation around their, their follow. So in terms of these other teams, I guess Baltimore would be similar to that. Uh, you know, another young team with that has gotten slammed for the lack of payroll over the last few years, right or wrong. I tend to think that that is the team that could justify it and has been sort of building the right way, if you will. Um, and they just needed a little bit of patience there. Uh, so that's a team where you could see them, you know, lock up, maybe they lock up Gunnar Henderson and, you know, uh, Grayson Rodriguez, something like that, and start to make a push towards being, a, you know, being contenders. 
if the ownership stuff gets settled there, the TV stuff gets settled there, maybe that's another team that kind of, you know, Baltimore and Arizona, I could kind of see um, being higher up in this list uh, in future years, despite being smaller, smaller sized markets. The bottom three based on total valuation, Kansas City, Tampa Bay, Miami. T Tampa Bay is always at the bottom. Miami's always at the bottom. Tampa Bay has an interesting situation, and maybe you know more than me, but what is the status of their their stadium situation? I know a couple of years ago there was floating of they might split between Montreal and Tampa Bay. Uh, most recent that I can remember is they were trying to figure out a, a stadium deal for Tampa Bay, and obviously that's got to have a huge impact on their valuation, not only that they're a small market, but if they're in a old outdated stadium and they want to get one and it's always in flux. Uh, what is your read on, on that? I could be outdated on this. So if anyone listening has more up-to-date info, I apologize. Last I heard, I thought that they had settled on um, a location right near the current stadium in St. Pete. Um, I'm pretty sure the, a big hurdle was just the location alone, whether it would be in, you know, more towards downtown Tampa Bay or in St. Pete, which is on the outskirts, kind of difficult to get to, um, which has been an attendance issue here. So from what I, I think the last time I heard it, they had settled on sort of like a scaled down stadium that focused on amenities that was in St. Pete. Um, but I could be wrong on that. I, I, I mean, either I don't, have, I don't know what to say about this team. Like, I, I think that that stadium needs to be in downtown Tampa Bay. Um, but, I mean, I'm not a local. I don't know all the intricacies there. <laughs> right. I just think, like, St. Pete is very difficult to get to. You build it, even if you build a beautiful stadium there. I mean, it's, it's Florida. It's a vacation destination. It's not surprising that these teams, you know, are low in the valuations. It's just not, like it's not a demand in the summertime in Florida. So I, I think if you put any hurdles in front of people to get to those games, it, it's going to be diff, It's going to be difficult. So I, I think they both have an uphill challenge there. Tampa um, specifically with the stadium stuff until they figure that out. Um, I don't really see them going anywhere. So. All right. Two more things and I'll get you out of here. More, which is more likely the New York Mets surpassed $3 billion valuation after this season. The San Francisco Giants surpassed $4 billion, or the Chicago Cubs will surpass $5 billion after this season. So to lay it out, currently the Mets are at 2.82. Scott had mentioned earlier. Um, I think that goes up. I think they could clear $3 million, no problem. I also think the Giants – um, could clear four, but I think it might take another year. Um, I do like that they're trying. Um, <laughs> I, I, that sounds kind of like a loser mentality, but they, they're they trying to sign people. They're trying to make a run at it. I think if they lock up, you know, they, they could have an okay season this year, going into next year, lock up a premier free agent. Um, I could see that clearing, but I, I would say them. I would pick the Mets of that group. Yeah, I find it interesting – the Mets have been in discussions. If, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, Chicago potentially has been in discussions for Otani if he hits the free agent market. I mean, 
some of these teams, if they they land a premier free agent like that, that is an overseas, that market could potentially go up just from that exposure from being overseas, market sales, you know, merchandise, that kind of stuff. So it'll be interesting to see if he stays with the Angels or if he ends up landing with another team, a la trade or gets the free agency and signs with them uh, to see if they can jump that next billion dollar mark. Um, yeah, good, good point. If we see Otani go to a different team, we can maybe over the next two years sort of get a better gauge in terms of, um, you know, like when Juan Soto, when, with when it was time to trade Juan Soto in Washington was in the midst of ownership, is it more valuable to have Juan Soto on your team when you're going into a sale or to trade him before and not let the new ownership group have to deal with that? Um, it's kind of the same situation here in a lot of ways um, where if Otani leaves, we might get sort of like a tangible value on what he meant to, to the angels, you know, sportical valuation here. If they yeah. go down and his new team that he goes to explodes a bit, but yeah, I mean, tons of over, it's going to be really interesting to watch the valuation of, in, in both directions. If the angels lose him and the team that acquires him. All right, last question I have for you, and this you may have no idea, but I'm looking for just a, you know, as best of an educated answer as possible based on, I know you've been doing a ton of legwork on, you know, pre-arbs, arbs, prospects, you name it, with Major League Baseball. If, if you were to guess which team is potentially going to have a, a big jump from the 23 valuation to 24 valuation for next year. Any sense of what team you might target? Um, good question. Off the top of my head, I will say the Padres. Um, I could come up with a couple teams that would probably be good for that conversation. I really like what the Padres are doing. I, I have some questions about the depth on that team, things like that, no farm system, but they're going for it. And there's a ton of excitement there. Players want to sign there. Seems some guys want to stay there. So if they're able to lock up, you know, Juan Soto long-term, um, they just got Machado done. I could see that, um, that team getting a boost here um, specifically next year and over the course of the next couple years. I guess I don't know the intricacies of how these um, rankings and, and total numbers work, that if any of the factors I just laid out will actually have an impact on that number. But I think it's at least interesting what they've been doing there. Um, ownership is obviously committed. Uh, so yeah, I, that'll be that'll be my, my long answer. Okay, my short answer is going to be Seattle. I think they're on the their trajectory is going up. And with the Julio signing and the acquisitions that they've been doing, they seem like they're another team that is in the all-in kind of mode. And if they can get another, you know, splashy kind of signing or uh, they have another spectacular year, can get into the playoffs again, I think that's another team that could potentially jump. Yeah, I I could see it too. That I have been on the record as I think Houston, um, you know, is kind of in a plateau period right now. And um, I Seattle could definitely kind of jump into that conversation. And if they can uh, 
keep adding to what they've already put together. And Jared Apoto has been very aggressive. Um, I expect him to keep, you know, keep doing so with the core that he's already put in place. So yeah, I like that as a, as a pick here. All right. Thanks for your time, Dan. Awesome. Thanks, Scott. See ya.